There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, it's good to be back doing these live again. You bet. Well, during COVID, we had to do them all digitally in different locations, and then we've had a few things get in the way recently, but it's certainly nice to be back in the office doing this. And last week, we had Howard Atkinson on the show, Greg. You remember that? I do. Howard is the CEO of Pascal Wealth Tech and formerly ran Horizon ETFs. And he talked to us about some of the changes in the financial services industry over the past 30 years. We'd encourage people to go back and listen to that show if they Absolutely. have time. But today we're going a different direction. Today we are pleased to have join us Jamie Gollenbeck. Jamie's the Managing Director for Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC. And he's no stranger to our podcast, Greg. Absolutely. He's a repeat customer, repeat speaker, which is nice. He also joined us on a CM Group webinar back in March of 2021 titled A COVID Tax Season. We're definitely glad we've moved beyond that. But Jamie has a wealth of tax and financial planning experience. He joined the firm in 2008 after 12 years with a global investment company where he was involved in both internal and external consulting on all areas of taxation and estate planning. I hope I captured all that, Greg. I think so. That's what we had written down anyway. All right. Well, welcome to the free lunch. Jamie, welcome back, I should say. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. And why don't we just kick this off? It's a new year, thank goodness, I think, on many fronts. But tax planning for 2022 is now in the can. And we're looking at tax planning for 2023. So maybe let's just kick it off by talking maybe a little bit about what's changed since last year. What's new for this year, Jamie? The thing is, there are a lot of changes. There are a few things, obviously, that we could talk about today, but probably the biggest change is what's on everyone's mind is inflation. Recent numbers showing inflation around 6.3%. From a federal tax perspective, we actually had full indexation of the tax brackets federally for 2023. And that basically means that we have five federal tax brackets that go right up to 235000 All those brackets were effectively indexed for inflation by 6.3%. So even if your income stayed completely flat from 2022 to 2023, you'll actually be paying a little bit less tax because the amount of income that's captured in that particular bracket will be less as long as you're not obviously at the top rate. So in other words, effectively, most people will see, if your income is flat, a slight reduction in taxes simply because the brackets themselves have been indexed to inflation. So I think that's probably the biggest change for 2023. A couple of other things. There's a new credit for this year that might apply to some people. That is, for example, you have perhaps a family member that is over 65 or perhaps a family member with a disability, and you want to renovate your home to make it accessible, to make it livable for that relative to move in with you, brand new for 2023 is the multi-generational home renovation credit. And that's worth 15%, up to $50,000 of qualifying renovations. 
And I guess the only other big news, and we can talk about this a little bit later, is, of course, the brand new registered plan, the first home savings account from the FHSA. And that's expected to launch as soon as April 1st, 2023. And that will allow Canadians who are considered to be first-time home buyers an opportunity to save on a tax-deductible basis up to $8,000 a year or $40,000 over five years, save it for up to 15 years in a completely tax-sheltered account, and then take all that money out tax-free to buy a first home. So it combines the benefits of an RSP, which gives you a tax deduction, with the tax-free growth and the tax-free withdrawal that you get from the TFSA. So those are kind of my three big news items. We can obviously expand on them, but those are the big items. Not a lot of other changes for 2023. So they've just taken the first-time home buyer's plan from the RSP and married it with a tax-free savings account strategy. Is that how you describe that? I don't quite get it. Sort of. I mean, the good news is actually you can use both. Originally in the legislation, you had to choose one or the other. So as you point out, there is an existing plan. The existing plan is called the Home Buyer's Plan, which is available to first-time home buyers, which allows each person who's a first-time home buyer to withdraw 35000 tax-free from an RSP. The difference is that it must be paid back within 15 years. And if you don't pay it back within 15 years, you include the amount you don't pay back in your income for that particular year. The new plan, the First Home Savings Account, is the opportunity to put in an additional $8,000 a year on top of any RSP contribution limit that you have or perhaps don't have because you're part of a pension plan and you have a pension adjustment. So it's giving everyone another $8,000 of room for up to five years, $40,000. You get a tax deduction for that. You get to grow that tax-free for up to 15 years. And should you buy a home within 15 years, you can take out not just your $40,000 of contributions, but all the income and growth completely tax-free to use it as a down payment for a home. And you can use this in conjunction with or in addition to the home buyer's plan that we just talked about. And when you look at it then, so 40000 plus growth plus possibly up to 35000 from the RRSP, that's getting to a point where it could actually take care of a down payment with average home prices in the $600,000 range. People are looking at a pretty sizable down payment even on a first home. Especially if you're married or living common law and you each qualify, you can double those numbers. That's 40000 each and 35000 each, ignoring any growth in the FHSA. It could be a substantial down payment for a first-time homebuyer. For subscribers to this plan, is it 18 years and older? Is that the way this plan is set up? Absolutely. So you've got to be at least 18 years of age or older to participate in the plan. You obviously must be a resident of Canada. You have to meet that definition of a first-time home buyer, and that is something that we've had in the Income Tax Act for a while now, ever since the introduction of the home buyers. But all it means is that you didn't own a home in the current year, in the previous four calendar years. So you might have owned a home years ago, maybe you sold it, maybe you're renting right now, but you cannot have owned a home in the current or previous four calendar years. Interesting. Now that $8,000 you can put away annually, so you can carry that forward, is that right? So yes, there's a bit of a carry forward, but they didn't want people to just open up the plan and put in a dollar, and then in five years, put in 40000 You can put in 8000 a year. The maximum carry forward, they've limited to 8000 So in other words, yes, you could eventually catch up and make your whole 40, but you can't ever carry forward more than eight. So let's say this year, you can put in eight. The years only start when you actually open up the plan. 
So you open up the plan this year, you put in eight, and the next year you do another eight. If you open up the plan this year and only put in a thousand, it'll have seven thousand carried forward, and next year you can put in a new eight plus the seven carried forward. But in the third year, you wouldn't be able to unlimited carry forward of the amount limited to eight thousand dollars of carry forward plus the current year contribution. Interesting. And you can see all sorts of planning opportunity as I'm thinking of, say, my own kids or people who are trying to help out their kids or grandkids. And usually it's, well, I'd like to give them some help with their first down payment on a house or something like that. This is an awesome way for parents or grandparents to help out kids in their 18 plus range as they start saving for that first home, which is getting harder and harder for many people to get their foot in the door. Absolutely. The plan sounds great, but I'm just thinking of my kids, Greg. My kids don't have $8,000 to put away, plus TFSA, plus RSP, plus whatever. So is the idea for it to be a multi-generational help? How does an 18-year-old put away $24,500 a year, whatever? They don't. That's obviously the issue. Someone who's 18, unless they're working full-time, is not going to be able to put away this money. So I think really it's meant for people that are a little bit later in their careers, perhaps in their 20s, that are still not entering that first-time home buyer's market. It's just that additional incentive. Now you're going to have choices. RSP, TFSA, FHSA. There is no doubt in my mind that the FHSA would trump every other use. You're getting a tax deduction and a potential for tax-free withdrawal. The only downside is if you don't actually buy a home in 15 years, you don't lose the money but you can move it over into your RRSP, in which case, obviously, it'll be taxable when you take the money out. Unless someone is saving for a short-term need, so maybe they need to buy a car, or they're saving for a trip, or a wedding reception, things like that, maybe the TFSA is the ideal vehicle there. But alternatively, I would certainly do the FHSA before I do an RSP. If I qualify, why wouldn't you do that? I would even go so far as to suggest that even lifelong renters that qualify should open up an FHSC if they're under 71. Why not? You have an additional $8,000 of room for five years. That's $40,000. And if you don't ever buy a home at age 71, you just roll that money over to an RSP. It gives you an extra $40,000 plus investment in growth that you otherwise wouldn't have had in your RSP. So it doesn't impact your RSP limits? doesn't impact whatsoever your RSP limits, either on the contributions or on the transfers out. That's correct. When it also takes away some of that, there's always discussion, well, currently, do I prioritize the TFSA or the RRSP? And well, if I don't have a high income right now to offset the benefits of the deduction, maybe the TFSA is the right way to go strictly because of the lower income than might otherwise be most beneficial to an RSP. But now, in a way, maybe you don't care. Well, certainly with the FHSA, you don't care because you're getting a deduction no matter what bracket you're in. And in fact, you bring up a really interesting point. You're allowed under the legislation to carry forward that deduction to a future tax year. So let's say you have a very low income this year, and maybe it's under $15,000, which is the basic amount. You don't pay any tax. If you can put in five grand this year, you can claim that deduction in a future year. There's no requirement to take it in the current year for the first home savings account, just like with an RSP contribution. You don't have to claim a deduction in the current year. For example, someone's on maternity leave or paternity leave, their income is very low. You can take that deduction in a future year. Interesting. You've certainly answered the question that I had, which is, 
how to prioritize contributions now because we have three pretty awesome tax deferral or tax savings opportunities. But Greg, let's talk about another one that you talked about with me before we start recording was, as you say, you've addressed this maybe order of deposits, if you want to call it that. So the question we get all the time is, should I pay down my mortgage or should I put more money into investments? And the answer was easy a few years ago when rates of return were high and borrowing costs were low. How do you answer that today, Jamie? That's a great question. And the question always comes down to what is the rate? What is the rate on that mortgage? If you've got that variable mortgage, your rate could be around the 6% range. If you have a fixed mortgage, maybe you're still locked in at that 2% for the last year or two, like who knows? So I think it really depends. So I would say, look, if your interest rate on your mortgage is very low, don't pay it off. Why would you pay it off? Although there is some discussions on the refinancing side is that when you do refinance it, maybe that's the time to pay it off if you can afford to, because you're going to refinance probably at a higher rate if you're like on one of those fixed rate terms. On the other hand, markets potentially have a buying opportunity. Look at the equity markets, which have been down substantially in the last year. So is this the right opportunity to get there for the long term, to buy into those equity markets where you can hopefully get a rate of return that's higher than the rate on that mortgage? And if so, then obviously saving for retirement, whether it's RSP or TFSA, well, of course, will depend on your tax rate now versus your future tax rate. But clearly, generally speaking, investment for the long term for retirement would be better than paying down debt. Again, unless your debt is at a relatively high rate or perhaps you're a conservative investor and you're investing in short term fixed income, very secure type of GICs or money market or savings account in your RSP or TFSA, earning one, two, three percent in which case your mortgage rate is probably higher. And in that case, I would obviously prioritize paying down the debt. Certainly, if we broaden that discussion and and someone who has credit card debt, I mean, anyone with credit card debt shouldn't even have an RSP or a TFSA. No offense, but if you're paying 20% on your credit card, there's no way you're going to get a guaranteed rate of return of 20% annually on an after-tax basis by investing in RSP or TFSA. If there is, let me know and I'll invest because (laughs) I haven't seen such an investment. So obviously anyone with consumer debt, with credit card debt, things like that, shouldn't even be doing anything in the RSP or TFSA until they fully paid off that non-deductible debt. One of the other things that's changed with the changes in interest rates and one of the tax planning considerations that you've talked about quite a lot would be income splitting opportunities using things like disposal loans. I guess with the prescribed rate is changing fairly dramatically or has changed fairly dramatically. Talk about that maybe a bit. So there used to be, until a few months ago, a great idea for the last number of years to take advantage of the low prescribed interest rate. So generally speaking, there's a rule in the Income Tax Act that prevents you from income splitting. In other words, if I give my wife money to invest, any income or gains that she earns attributes back to me. Because the government has a policy, they don't want people to income split. There is an exception to that rule. And the exception is instead of giving her money, if I loan her the money and I charge the minimum prescribed rate. Now, that rate is set by the CRA quarterly. It's based on the Treasury bill, the first month of the preceding quarter. And historically, the last number of years, because of the low interest rate environment going into the pandemic, we had rates of around 1%. Right now, that rate is 4%. So it used to be. But if I loan my wife money at 1%, any rate of return that she earned above 1% could be taxed in her hands. So if I'm in a top bracket and she's in a bottom bracket, we could save 20 30% depending on our tax rates, et cetera. 
that was a great deal at 1%. It was okay at 2%. It was acceptable at 3 Would I do it today when the rate is 4 Probably not. I've got a guaranteed rate of return of over 4%. Now, I guess it's possible on maybe some dividend-paying stocks. You can get a dividend yield of over 4 You barely break even there. So I'm not sure i do it at 4 And I think what we're seeing right now, based on preliminary rates in the beginning of January 2023, is the rate's going to 5 potentially, on April the 1st. And you lock in the rate for the duration of the loan. So anyone who locked in that rate at 1% like a year ago, a year and a half ago, is in great shape because you don't have to adjust the rate on the loan quarterly as a CRA adjusts their rate. It's the loan time of origination. So I guess my only message is not worthwhile doing right now, but keep it on the radar. If interest rates do eventually drop down the next year or two, then obviously it's something to look at and say, do I do a prescribed rate loan at one or at two? and then do some income splitting. But right now, I don't think that strategy makes any more sense going forward. If you already set it up, good for you. But a reminder, though, that the interest is due on January the 30th each year, or the loan actually falls apart, not just for the previous year, it actually falls apart for all future years, which is really problematic. That's an important deadline. On that note, we actually have set up a number of spousal loans over the last few years for clients, and people are making their interest payments now from spouse to spouse. Does the government care in what form that payment is made? Does it require writing a check or can it be moving securities? It doesn't really matter as long as it's real. Okay, that's the most important thing. The cleanest thing is that the borrower who has to pay the interest should ideally write a check or do an electronic funds transfer from their own account, not a joint account, from their own account to the own account of the other spouse. That's the cleanest way to do it. Some people will transfer securities, realizing that there could be a disposition on those securities. You've got to be careful about that. Otherwise, attribution rules could apply, things like that. So you got to be a little bit careful. The cleanest way, obviously, is with a check. And again, we had a situation a few years ago, the spouse should actually cash the check. That's important because people just writing checks and sending in a copy of a check is not going to work. You've got to show that the money was really cashed and within 30 days and deposited into the other account. That's important. Paper trail should CRA ever look at this. Because remember, you're claiming that interest on your tax return each year. And that's good paper trail for the CRA to make sure that the attribution rules don't apply. So often I've gotten inquiries when I claim interest expense on my return because I use a margin account. Sometimes I use a line of credit to do my non-registered investing from time to time. They have actually asked for proof that I've borrowed the money and that I paid the interest. So I actually end up sending them statements showing the interest paid on that line of credit so that they can actually see it. So same thing here. You got a line item on your return. It says interest paid on spousal loan. You better be able to back that up with a cancel check or an electronic funds transfer. I think that's best practice. Any other legal income splitting opportunities these days, or has the government shut down most of what used to be the opportunities? There's not a lot you can do. I mean, the two big ones, obviously, are obviously if you're in retirement, you could do pension income splitting. That's still a big one for many of our clients where you're getting a regular defined benefit or defined contribution payout on a monthly basis, splitting half of that at the end of the year on your tax return with your spouse or partner can save a bunch of tax and even can preserve old age security clawback in some cases. And the other one right now, I would say, is the opportunity to set up spousal RSPs. So again, the idea is that if you're in a high bracket, but your spouse or partner will always be in a lower bracket in retirement, maybe what you want to do is every year make an RSP contribution, not to your own RSP, but to a spousal RSP. You get the deduction, your spouse gets the money. And ultimately, when they take the money out in a RIF at age 71 or later, 
that money will be taxed in their hands and not in your hands. So I think those are the big ones, pension splitting and using spousal RSPs. I found there's been some misunderstanding on spousal RSPs that I've run across. So just to clarify, maybe you could point out that the contribution limit is based off of who's contributing, correct? Absolutely. So a spousal RSP is simply an RSP to which you are the contributor, but to which your spouse or partner is the actual legal owner of the account. So your RSP contributions are based on your limit. You can contribute as much as you want up to your limit to either your RSP, to your spouse's RSP, to any combination of that. It actually has nothing to do with the spouse's RSP room. In fact, in many cases, that spouse is non-working and they actually have no RSP room. So this is a great way of getting funds into their hands legally to allow income splitting upon retirement. Let's say they deregister those funds for whatever reason. The rule is three years or the income goes back to the original contributor. To prevent what's called short-term income splitting, what they do is they have a three-year look-back rule that said if you've made a spousal or a contribution within a three-year period and you take the money out within that period of time, then potentially some of those contributions, some of that withdrawal will be taxable back to the contributing spouse rather than the lower-income spouse that's trying to take the money out. So you got to be a little bit careful there, but most people, that's not an issue. Greg, what else you got? Let's talk a little bit about CPP and OAS. So with inflation the way it has been, how have the benefits increased this year because of the high inflation? Are they adjusted with CPI? Absolutely. It's a little bit more complicated when you look at the actual numbers. But yes, if you're already in payment mode, you're going to get 6.3% more based on the indexation. If you haven't yet started collecting CPP, the maximums are going up, but it's a much more complicated formula because it's also based on the YMP, the yearly maximum pensionable earnings, the increase in wage inflation. So yes, absolutely. The longer you wait to CPP, the better, as we all know. Our general advice for clients that are in relatively good health is don't take CPP unless you need it. In other words, defer, defer, defer until age 70. You're going to get 0.7% more for every month. So if you look at 60 months, that's 42% more CPP for the rest of your life if you defer to age 70. Not only that, but as some recent articles have shown, because the YMPE, the maximum pensionable wage has actually gone up significantly because of wage inflation in the last year or two, you actually get a higher benefit as well from the actual CPP itself, not just the deferral value. So I would say, look, unless you're in poor health or you afford life expectancy, I think that break even is somewhere around age 82 or 83, something like that. If you plan to live longer, you don't need the money. Then for most people, deferring CPP makes sense. On the other hand, there's other considerations. Depending on your tax bracket, if you've got a large RIF and you've got to take the money out at 72, you know, put you in a high bracket, and then there might be clawbacks and things like that, then maybe you take CPP earlier so that your total income is lower throughout your entire retirement. So it involves some modeling, but it's a good problem to have. <laughs> it's not exactly splitting CPP, but there is a way to share CPP among or between spouses. And it's a little bit different than sharing a pension. Can you maybe just describe that a little bit? So you can go to on the website when you apply for CPP, they'll look at your entitlement, they'll look at your spouse's entitlement, they'll add the two together and divide by two. It's very different. It's not an annual election like you do with pension income splitting on your tax returns. This is something that needs to be set out at source with CPP. So you contact Benefits Canada, you can go online, you can do that calculation and then decide. And that, that obviously works from an income splitting perspective 
if you can share the total CPP between two spouses or partners, you may end up paying less tax. So each situation is very different. You can run the numbers and determine if that's worthwhile. Okay. But as you say, once you set it up, that's the way it stays. Yeah. Gotcha. One thing which always comes up in discussions with clients, and that is the asset location in all of these now multiple tax-deferred, tax-free accounts, and then, of course, non-registered accounts. Can you maybe just talk about the different tax rates on various types of investments and how that affects asset location? Yeah, again, the traditional rule of thumb, I think, still applies, is that at the end of the day, I mean, you put the highly taxed stuff inside of the registered plan. So, for example, if you've got GICs, bonds, fixed income, you're taxed about top rates, Alberta top rate is 48%. Those are the type of investments in the RSP and the TFSA, whereas equities, which are only 50% tax on capital gains, or if you earn Canadian dividends, you get the dividend tax credit, much more tax favorable. To the extent that you have both fixed income and equities, then generally, I mean, our view is that you would hold the fixed income in an RSP or TFSA, and you would hold the equities on the outside where you benefit from the 50% capital gains tax and the dividend tax credit, both of which you don't get in the RSP or TFSA. That being said, if the only thing that you're investing in is equities, certainly many young people are not doing any fixed income, bonds have not done well recently, then maybe it's all in the RSP or TFSA. Nothing wrong with that. It's really when you have a choice And if you choose to have some fixed income, then maybe it makes sense to have that completely sheltered inside of the TFSA or the RSP. That brings up a good question with the new, what did you call it, HFSA? Is that what it's called? FHSA, the first home sale. FHSA. So with the new FHSA, it's going to lead to some questions about, okay, well, what do I put in it? And I guess it's going to come down to the time horizon of when that person is going to want to buy that house Just remember, unlike the RSP, unlike the TFSA, which are actually tax neutral in almost every scenario because you pay tax either now, you earn salary and you pay tax on the salary after tax goes to the TFSA, or you pay tax later. Like an RSP, you get a deduction from your salary and you put that and you pay tax when you take it out. FHSA, the inherent advantage is not so much in the growth, but it's in the fact that you get a deduction on the way in and no tax on the way out. Even if the rate of return is zero, you're ahead of the game because you've got a deduction when you put the money in and no income inclusion on the way out. I think people can afford to be very conservative depending on the time horizon. You're going to buy a home in three years, five years. Look, I tell anyone who's saving for a down payment in the short term, money market, GICs, no equities. Why would you invest in equities if you're going to buy a home within five years? It's too risky. We've seen that recently. If you were saving up to buy a home, you had all that money in equities last year, you lost 20%. There goes your down payment. I hate to bring this up, but not to mention fixed income, where, <laughs> where we also lost 10 to 15%. Yeah. So, <laughs> we look at things like GICs. If you know that you're going to buy the home in one, two, three, maybe a ladder GIC, something like that, something very conservative, zero risk. And you're going to get a bit of return there. But man, the FHSA, you don't even need the return because you're getting a return just on the tax side. Exactly. One other thing of interest was, sadly, as we've been alluding to, last year was just a fantastic year for one thing, and that was tax loss selling. It was (laughs) a great year. We did a lot. We crushed it with tax loss selling. And the tax loss selling, of course, occurred in a year when capital gains are currently still taxed at 50%. Has there been any noise? This was a big concern a couple of years ago with the federal government that they were going to move on the capital gains inclusion rate, and then it sort of went quiet. Have you heard any noise, any rumblings about changes to that? 
Look, it comes up every year. I've been asked this already three times and so far in 2023. <laughs> so there's obviously nothing official. Last year, there was an official statement where Minister Freeland specifically said that they were not looking at the capital gains inclusion rate. So that shut down that whole discussion pretty quickly. That being said, we know the deficits. We know the COVID spending. We see the billions of dollars of excess payments that were made inappropriately to people on the COVID benefit and the personal side and the wage subsidies and government needs the money. So the question then is, what would the government turn to in terms of raising more money, raising the top rate on high-income people? Absolutely. I think it's on the table. It was floated before. And capital gains, the average Canadian doesn't have any capital gains because the average Canadian doesn't have any non-registered money. All their money is an RSP, TFSA, and their principal residence, which is tax-free. So really, it's the top income people, the highest income people that have capital gains. And the government wants to continue taxing the wealthy, which is something they've been doing for the last number of terms. I wouldn't be surprised if the government does look to increase the capital gains inclusion rate, 50% now, maybe it goes up to two thirds or three quarters, both of which we've seen before. The hope is, though, that even if it does go up, people don't sell. They don't want to sell anyway because the markets are down. You hold off a year or two, maybe there's a change in policy, a change in government, and the rate goes back down again. So we don't know for sure what's going to happen, but certainly there's talk about it, but there's nothing official. Well, there's definitely other forms of wealth transfer tax in place. I mean, even like the luxury tax now on vehicles over $100,000, that's going to impact that top tier that you point out outside of just what you mentioned. Absolutely. But that affects very, very few people. There are very few people in numbers that are buying $100,000 cars and $250,000 boats. I mean, some people are but not most people. So again, that's, they're talking about a very low revenue pickup on that. I just have one more question, and that was on auditing. I was told a few years ago that, as you point out, the government's looking to fill its coffers somehow, and that possibly that would lead to more auditing of individuals. Is that something to consider? Well, the government has certainly increased enforcement in certain areas on aggressive tax planning and very high net worth people. I think for the average Canadian, it's nothing to worry about. They certainly are doing what's called routine reviews. They're looking at large amounts of donations or employment expenses. They're asking you to routine letters that are computer generated and you send in the receipts and a year later, you hear back that everything's fine. I don't know if that's a full blown audit. But that being said, if you are doing aggressive stuff, some of these tax avoidance schemes out there, these tax deniers, things like that, obviously they're aggressively going after that stuff. So I think the average Canadian, nothing to worry about there on the audit side. Uh, obviously, if you're a high net worth doing fancy things with trusts and offshore, then yes, I would be a little bit more worried. We better wrap it up there, Greg. Hey? You bet. Listen, thank you, Jamie, because you've directly answered a lot of questions with regards to, as I say, prioritization of contributions and timing of CPP, OAS, things like that. So that's excellent. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Oh, one last question. We didn't ask you. You're normally based in Toronto. Where are you joining us from today? Today, I am in sunny, freezing Alberta, in Edmonton specifically. In Edmonton. We're doing a big client presentation at lunch today on almost everything we've talked about today. So it's beautiful. It's minus 15. So you're going to head to West Edmonton Mall just after the presentation and (laughs) hit the food court? (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. Probably lucky that this podcast won't air until next week. Otherwise, people would probably listen to it and just not bother to show up. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> no offense to the Flames fans, but I did get to take it in Oilers game last night, and they did win the game, which was very exciting. Being from Toronto, don't hold that against me, and a long, long, agonizing Leaf fan, although I was born after the last time we won the cup without giving too much information away, <laughs> I was pleased to see that Zach Hyman, 
an ex-Toronto player, actually went to my high school, was the number one star last night with a goal and two assists. So I'm very excited. Cool. You nailed it for sure. That's good. Well, thanks, Jamie, for all your time today. And always, we find that everything that you do in regards to tax planning, all of the publications and notices, it's just really helpful. So we really, really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.